Turn, if you would, to the 27th chapter of the book of Matthew. Yes, there's only 28 chapters, so we're getting close. Last week, we started chapter 27 dealing with the trials. Jesus was brought before the uh, religious leaders, the high priest, and all the leaders associated with him. And they tried to find witnesses that would say bad things about him. They had difficulty doing that. Remember, in a Jewish court, you had to have two witnesses that said the same thing. They had lots of witnesses who said stuff, but they didn't have two that said the same thing. And finally, they got Jesus on, well, are you the Son of God? And he said, well, you said I am. And they said, this is blasphemy. They tore his, their robes, which was their sign of disgust. And they said, okay, you've got to die. But the Jewish officials could not execute somebody. So they had to take him to Pilate to get Pilate to order him to be executed. Well, Pilate didn't want to have anything to do with it. But he finally gave in to the crowd and said, go ahead, go kill him. Now, in the midst of that, we actually skipped a section. And that is starting in verse 3, dealing with Judas. I wanted to make it through the trials last week, so we did that. But we skipped the part about what happened to Judas. We have actually talked about this on several occasions because we were comparing Judas, who refused to repent and return to Jesus, and we compared that with Peter, who, though he denied Christ, eventually is going to come back to Christ, and Christ is going to forgive him. So, if you would, verse 3 of chapter 27. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. And that is the end of Judas. Then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. I'm not sure what he expected to happen. There are lots of people who speculate what he thought was going to happen to Jesus when he, Judas, betrayed Jesus to the religious leaders. There are some who think that Judas was trying to force Jesus to actually exercise his power as king and zap everybody. And he didn't do it. Maybe he was thinking that all they were going to do is beat him up a little bit and ship him out of town. And when when he found that they were going to condemn him to death, well, then he changed his mind. Or maybe he just realized, this is the wrong thing that I've done. It is interesting that he says, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Changing your mind is an important thing. I mean, the idea of repentance carries with it the idea that I'm headed this direction, and I repent, and I turn, and I go someplace else. I return to what I know is right. But we're going to see that while Judas changes his mind, he doesn't really repent. All he does is he's feeling guilty. 
He's feeling the weight of what he has done, and he wants that weight to go away. Now, I am not a psychologist, and I don't play one on TV. But we begin to wonder about Judas's state of mind. Because what we see are a lot of people today who are sorry for what they did. I did something, and I don't know how to get out of it. I always remember I read one of uh, Dr. Laura's books one time. I don't know. If, I don't, is she even still on the radio? Anyway, I read one of her books one time, and she said whenever she's being interviewed, the question that she's asked the most often, not the specific question, but the form of the question is, I've done something that I shouldn't have done. How do I get out of the consequences? She said, most of the questions fall into that category. I've done something I shouldn't have done. How do I get out of the consequences? And that's what Judas is trying to do. I don't know what he expected. As I said, I'm not a psychologist. Did he expect that if he returned the money, they would release Jesus? Well, that was just stupid. They're not going to do that. Did he think that by returning the money, his weight of guilt would be removed from him? Well, that's stupid too. Guilt is a fascinating thing today in most discussions about it. Because we believe that guilt is simply a thing that society forces on you because you didn't conform to society. You know, you're doing some behavior that society thinks is wrong and society beats you over the head and you feel guilty because you're not matching society. It's just a thought that you have in your head. And if you really thought about it a long time, you could get rid of it. Scripturally, guilt is an objective thing that is attached to you when you realize you've done something wrong that violates the Word of God. Now, we know that people, society, can put false guilt upon you, but there is such a thing as real guilt, which is the acknowledgement that I have broken the law of God. But wait a minute. There's vast numbers of people who don't claim to know the law of God, why do they feel guilty? Because as we're told in the book of Romans, the law of God is written on the human heart. And when we do things that violate that word of God, whether we are aware of it or not, our conscience says no. And that's what true guilt is. Now, throughout the scripture, we talk about people who have hardened their hearts. They have hardened their hearts so much that they can no longer hear that conscience telling them that what they're doing is wrong. Or that hardened heart tells them, what I'm doing right now can never be forgiven. More about that in just a moment. So Judas returns to the religious officials who had given him the money, and he says, I have sinned by taking this money. I have sinned by betraying Jesus. And you know what? He's right. He had. Now, the next sentence on the part of the religious leaders is fascinating to me. Let's say you 
did something you ought not have done. I don't know what it is, okay? But you know you've done it. And you come to one of the pastors at our church for counseling. And you say, I've done this and I shouldn't have done it. And that counselor looks at you and says, what's that to me? That's not my problem. That's what they're saying right here. That's your problem. If you feel guilty, if you think you've sinned, that's all your problem. Well, this tells us how these religious leaders were no longer fulfilling their obligation as religious leaders. They weren't even interested in performing the functions of a religious leader. At this point in time, even for good Jews, they should have said, offer this sacrifice and God will forgive you, or something. But they didn't do it. They didn't do it. Why? Hmm? It didn't fit their narrative of how this story was going to come out. More on that in just a moment. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. There is a mindset that says, I've done wrong, and I turn and I look at Jesus. But there's also a mindset that says, I've done wrong, and you turn it look, and all you see is despair. We're going to have a brief discussion about suicide, which is what Judas does here. Years, years ago, while reading some Catholic literature of some sort, I came upon this idea that in the Catholic Church, suicide is a mortal sin, which I thought was really odd. What in the world does that mean? I mean, you're dead, okay, but can it be forgiven? Well, you're dead. You're not going to repent of it. And before I mention why, as I wrap my head around it, they considered suicide a mortal sin, I want to add a little pastoral note. Because when I first read that years ago, I was not really acquainted with families and people who had had someone, an acquaintance, a friend, commit suicide. I was not aware how prevalent it is. Now we've had members of this church who have committed suicide. We've had friends whose children have committed suicide and we mourn for them. The Catholic Church today has actually, while not saying that it's not a mortal sin, have acknowledged the fact that the human mind is a complex structure, and that because of mental illness, because of different effects of things, we don't know the state of the person's heart when they killed themselves. And we will trust the mercy of God in those situations, which is true. So, I say that at the pastoral level. But why is suicide a mortal sin? 
It is because what we are doing is we are looking at the universe and we're saying God messed up. God has done something wrong. I've looked at God, I've looked at the character of God, and I've decided God is an evil, wicked taskmaster, and I will not do things his way. It is the ultimate defiance of looking God in the eye and telling him no. No. What? I believe. Years ago, I had severe depression. I knew who God was, and I knew He was Jesus, my Savior. But fighting depression, which you never had, is the worst thing. That's why I started. His question, initial question, is, "Do I really believe that?" And the answer is yes. Okay, but let's address your question. That's why I put in the caveat at the beginning. We struggle with the reality of us as complex beings. Okay? The chemical, psychological interactions is difficult for us to understand. There was a pastor in, actually in Denton, who had a, has a sermon series. It's online. I, I actually listened to it about depression. And his comment was, before I went through this, I would have stood and told you, if you're depressed, it's because you're, you have unconfessed sin in your life. That's the only reason you'd be depressed. Having gone through it, I realize that I have no control over this. It is a chemical response to something. And he said, I needed medical and counseling help to work my way through it. So to answer your question... I'm going to tell you that Judas right here is mentally competent. He is not crazy. He's not necessarily depressed. He has done wrong and cannot live with the consequences. I am not saying that that's the case in every situation. I believe, and I've said this because we've talked about this, if Judas had thrown the money on the floor and a week later gone to Galilee to see Jesus, Jesus would have forgiven him. I Well, I can say I believe he went to hell. I cannot say I know that he went to hell. Okay? Let me, let, me, no, let me address that. I've said this in the class before, and I haven't said it in years, so maybe I should repeat it. I do not know the condition of your heart. Any of you. I know how good I am at faking things, so you're probably just as good as I am. Okay? Having said that, though, there are certain things that are red flags, okay? When you're a young person and you leave your spouse to go live with a cute young thing, that's a red flag that something's amiss. 
When you fall into unrepentant sin, that's a red flag that something is amiss. Now, does that mean that you lost your salvation? That's between you and God. We as a community are told to deal with unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our congregation. I'd say we don't do a very good job of that, but we have done it on occasion. We live in a very mobile society, and what usually happens is when you have unconfessed, uh, unrepentant sin in your life, and somebody points that out to you, you just leave. You do. I mean, it happens all the time. So, where is all this going? No. It is up to God to decide whether or not Judas is in heaven. I believe he's not. Okay? You can label that my opinion if you want, but I believe that he's not. Yes? I've learned a lot about this. What does that mean? It's very much. Mm-hmm. Is that Jesus? What Jesus had to say about it? That it was better, it would be better that he not be born. Born, right? That's, that's a, the death nail, and I can't put the two together. Very right. Well. I'm sure you'll be able to. No, I'm done. No. <laughs> Go ahead, Don. Jesus called him the son of perdition, and Peter also preaching said that he went to his own place. Yeah. But there are other verses that would lead us to believe that he didn't truly repent. Now, we could have a discussion at this point, but we're not going to. (laughs) Because the other topic that comes up frequently in our church and in other churches is the idea of, was he saved and then lost his salvation? We as a church and I as an individual believe that you cannot lose your salvation. That doesn't mean you can't join this church, hang around with Christian people all your life, think you're saved, and you're not really. Judas had every opportunity. For three years, he's been walking around with the Son of God. He knew the teaching. He understood, and when it came to dealing with his particular really wretched sin, he turned to despair instead of turning to God. And in his despair, as he began to understand that he had committed a sin that even God could not forgive, he took his own life. Years, 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 years ago, when I was in the singles department, at the church I grew up in, we had an individual who got married, left town, and killed himself. And a singing group that I was in sang at his funeral. And um, afterwards, I went home, and my mother sat me down and said, Kyle, don't ever do that. Because there's no coming back. There's no opportunity to restore relationships. 
There's no opportunity to truly seek repentance. It's done. She said, leave, run away, go to wherever, just don't do that. Years ago, years later, I was talking to an individual at work, and I don't know what the topic was or why I brought it up, but I mentioned what my mother had said. And several months later, he credited me, my mother, with saving his life because he did, in fact, go seek counseling. He went and checked himself into the psych ward of the hospital because of the stress in his life. Why am I giving this story? All of us need to acknowledge the fact that wherever you are in sin, and some of us are further and some of us are real further. Is that a word? (laughs) When you get to the point that you believe God cannot forgive this, you are saying untruths about God. Because what you're saying is, yeah, I was a pretty good guy, and God saved me because I was a pretty good guy, and I didn't have a whole lot to repent of. I mean, I was six years old when I became a believer, how much sin could I have gotten into, right? (laughs) But we don't acknowledge the fact that I, as a fallen human being, was living a life of rebellion against God, even as a six-year-old, as a 16-year-old, as a 26-year-old. I was living a life of rebellion against God, and God, in His grace and mercy, forgave me. It was a big deal then. Then why do we begin to think that there's something in our life that is so horrendous that God cannot forgive it? God has forgiven the most wretched sins imaginable plus some. But when we look at God and say God is a harsh taskmaster and he will not forgive me then we're speaking untruths about God and in that situation Judas killed himself end of the story of Judas but the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said it is not lawful to put them in the treasury since it is blood money. Now that's one of the most bizarre statements ever. I bribed somebody to identify someone so we could kill them, but that's okay. But I can't take the money back because it's blood money. You see, Judas at least turned halfway. He knew that he had done something wrong, but he wasn't willing to turn to Jesus. These religious leaders aren't turning at all. Yeah. 
I think it was Jesus's. Her question is, is it Judas's blood money or Jesus's blood money? And I would have to say Jesus, because I'm not sure. I mean, we're talking simultaneous events. He throw the money out, Judas leaves, and he goes and kills them. They're probably not aware of that yet. It is fascinating if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, there is a couple of ver- there are a couple of verses that tell you what kind of money you can't give to the church. I mean, the temple. If you are a prostitute and you earn money, you can't then take that and use it to pay your tithe. They don't want it. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? There's some money that is not acceptable to God. If you robbed a bank tomorrow, don't show up next Sunday with your tithe. (laughs) Why? Because your heart is hardened and God doesn't give a flip about your money. He cares about your heart. And your heart is saying, well, I got 90% of it stashed away. And no, I'm not turning that back over because I worked hard for that. The religious leaders acknowledge they couldn't take these 30 pieces of silver and just throw them into the bucket with the rest of the money for the temple. This just blows my mind that they would acknowledge that. They would acknowledge that this money was used to condemn an innocent man to death. We cannot use it for the purposes of the temple. What are we going to do with it? So they took counsel and brought with them, bought with the, them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Thus was fulfilled what had been spoken to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for it a potter's field as the Lord directed me. This is weird. That God told the prophet who? Jeremiah, this is what's going to happen. They took the money and they purchased some land so they'd have a place to bury strangers. This is what would be in the Old West, known as Boot Hill. Okay? Somebody dies. He's not a good Jew. He's not a good anybody. They don't even know who he is. He's got to be buried somewhere. Where do we bury him? Let's go put him in the, blood, the, the field of blood, and we're done. So, that ends the story of Judas. Picking up in verse 24, remember that Pilate has finally said, okay, go crucify him. And we're going to proceed from here to the death, to the actual crucifixion. We may not make it there today. But I would need to jump in right now and have a little bit of a Bible study just to tell you some of the dilemmas that certain people have about this story we're about to read. This story is so significant that it is presented in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
All four Gospels have an account of what's going to happen between now and, well, the resurrection. And these four stories are not identical to each other. And there are those who would say, that just proves it's all made up. Because there's four different stories. I told you a couple of months ago, I was listening to a series of lectures about the New Testament by a secular professor. And he said, it is foolish to try to line up these four stories. They just don't line up. Well, I'm here to say that they do line up. You go get a good commentary, and it will tell you, okay, here's the list. Here are the events that are going to happen between this point and, let's say, the crucifixion. And here's what Matthew tells us, and here's what Luke tells us, and here's what John and Luke tell us, and here, and here, and here. For example, they talk about the things that Jesus says on the cross. And there's a list of them. Not every gospel tells us all the things that he says. But just because Matthew does not relate everything does not mean that what Matthew says is wrong. It just means that Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded certain events because he was talking to a Jewish audience and there were certain things that that Jewish audience needed to hear. While John, writing to a different audience, had certain things that he recorded, but that doesn't mean that John and Matthew disagree with each other. They're just looking at different aspects of the story. You see, we live in a... Well, we pretend to be very rational. And I just use the word pretend because that's what we do. And we would like a historian at this point to write the definitive history that merges all these together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are historians in the sense that they are recording historical events. Everything that they say is true, but they're telling us what we need to know to accomplish the purpose that God gave them through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to relate to. That's why we just read about the prophet Jeremiah telling the people this is what's going to happen with the 30 pieces of silver. Because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and quoting the prophet Jeremiah fulfills the prophecy. That's important to a Jewish audience. If you were writing to a Gentile audience, they might not give a flip that the prophet... Who's who's that? So God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, is God, the Holy Spirit told the various authors, this is what you need to write. But we can line them all up. There are no contradictions between them. We're going to deal with one of those if I stop talking long enough to get onto the lesson. We're going to deal with one of those in a moment because we're going to talk about the two thieves on the cross that were crucified with Jesus. And Matthew's going to tell us they were both mocking Jesus. Now we know from Luke's account that one of those thieves finally said to the other one, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. And he asked Jesus, can I be saved? 
And Jesus says, sure thing. Well, those seem to contradict each other. No, not necessarily. Jesus is hung on the cross between two thieves. Let me just let you in on a secret. Getting crucified is a really wretched thing. If you crucified a thief, he's probably pretty ticked off. He's probably yelling and screaming and cussing at everybody. And you have these two thieves that are just letting everyone have it. And one of them begins to understand that this guy on the cross between us, he's different. He's different. And at some point he stops his mocking and condemnation. And he says, can I be saved? And Jesus says, sure thing. Once again, it is not a contradiction. It is simply a presentation of the story that is true for a particular audience. It can all be lined up. If we really wanted to have 10 more lessons about this week, we could go and show how all of this happens. We're not going to do that. We're working our way through the Matthew account. So, let's see how far we can read. So when Pilate saw, verse 24, that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took, hot, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. That's a bunch of hooey. He was guilty because he did not do the function that he should do. This is actually last week's lesson, by the way. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus, these would be the Roman soldiers, of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion, probably a cohort, before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. We had a brief discussion about this last week. In the sense that we are committed as a society, even when we do execute somebody, we're still interested in not committing cruel and unusual punishment. The Romans were interested in committing cruel and unusual punishment. Why? Because it was, in fact, a weapon of terror. So you're the Roman soldiers... And here is this guy who claims to be the king of the Jews. What did the Romans think about the Jews? Not much. <coughs> so I have this guy who claims to be the king of the Jews. This is my opportunity to mock the Jews, to mock this guy to insult him in every way imaginable, to make up for having to live in the middle of these stinking people who hate us. So they beat him, they sped upon him, they whipped him, 
They mocked him. They stripped him of his clothes. They put on some fake regal clothes. A crown of thorns smashed on his head because they wanted to humiliate him because in doing so, they were humiliating the Jewish people. Now, in reality, the Jewish people didn't care, but they didn't know that. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrenia, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Normally, under normal situations, the person about to be executed would carry the cross beam of the cross. Not the entire cross, but the beam that goes across the middle of it. He would be forced to carry that to the place of execution. Jesus, having been beaten, whipped, having been up for several days, was having difficulty. They grabbed a stranger out of the crowd. Why would this stranger have been there? It's Passover week. If you're a good Jewish male, regardless of where you lived in the known world, you were expected to show up in Jerusalem for Passover week. So he would have been there. Now, there's all kinds of speculations at this point of having carried the cross, would that disqualify him from receiving the rest of the events? Maybe. They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. If I'm going to execute somebody as an act of terror, i.e., I'm trying to terrorize you to not do this event before, I'm going to put a sign up. I'm going to put a sign up that says, Murderer. So that the next person who considers murdering somebody can look at that and go, do I want to end up like that? Or thief or some other crime so that everybody knows I don't want to do that or I will end up being there. That's the purpose of it. So all of them probably had a sign that said something. What does Jesus say? King of the Jews. In one of the other Gospels, we're told that the Jewish officials objected to this sign. He's not our king. The only king we have is Caesar. And Pilate said, it's already done. Why did Pilate do that? I think he was ticked off at the Jewish officials for working him into a corner to execute someone whom Pilate and Pilate's wife believed was an innocent person. He is the king of the Jews. It is interesting. We have long discussions at different times about the providence of God and the fact that God uses sinners to accomplish his purposes at times. We've got the truth on the sign at the top. Only Pilate didn't know it was the truth. The religious leaders didn't know it was the truth, but God knew it was the truth. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, 
wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He, he is the king of Israel. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For I say, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. We have a expectation. Sometimes we're kind of like Job's friends. If something bad is happening to Job, it must be because Job did something bad. He did something wrong. And if Jesus is hanging on a cross, this is proof positive that he's a wicked person. Because if he wasn't a wicked person, he wouldn't be executed by the Romans. And if he wasn't a wicked person, he wouldn't be hanging on a tree. Wait a minute. Somewhere in the Old Testament, doesn't it say, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So those who were familiar with his teaching would walk by and say, Look at you now. Doesn't this prove that everything that you said is wrong? You know what I'm going to say now, right? Because I've said it every one of the last three lessons. And I may not have to say it again except for today's lesson. At any point, Everything they ask him to do, he could have done. At any point, he could have said, enough of this. Pop those nails out, restored his body. Well, forget his body. Just turn on the Shekinah glory. And all of a sudden, all these people mocking him would have collapsed in terror for a glimpse of who Jesus is. It's like I've said before. Jesus is on the water. He's in the boat. Storm comes up. The disciples are screaming and shouting. They come to Jesus and they say, don't you worry that we're about to drown? Do something. What did they expect him to do? Bail water. What did Jesus do? He told the storm to stop so he could get a good night's rest. And guess what? The storm stopped. That's the guy that is sitting on the cross right here. This is the guy who could call down 72,000 angels. And I used the picture last week just because this is in my mind. This is all in my mind, right? I just picture the angels in heaven sitting there with their swords saying, let me go, let me go, let me go get him. And God said, no. No. There are two questions that we need to answer, and we're going to answer them in the next lesson. The first one is, why did he have to die? And the second one is, Why did he have to be raised from the dead? Because that's what this is all about. 
All of this is Jesus dying for the sins of humanity. Jesus, the perfect, flawless human being, dying for all humanity. Remember where we started this lesson, talking about guilt? And that we as moderns view guilt just as some psychological problem that, <coughs> that with good counseling you can get over. And there is false guilt. There really is. You know, I can make you feel guilty for something that I just make up. But there is true guilt when we have violated the word of God. When we have violated the commands of God that have been written on our hearts, we are truly guilty. And in the Old Testament, God set before the nation of Israel this list of sacrifices. If you do this, offer this sacrifice. If you do this, offer this sacrifice. (coughs) Once a year, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and offers a sacrifice on behalf of the people. All of that sacrificial system was pointing to this. Because we are truly guilty. And that guilt has to be dealt with. And Jesus is dealing with it on the cross. We'll pick up here in the next lesson. Generally, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would not fall into despair like Judas, but that we would acknowledge, that we would acknowledge the forgiveness that you give us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.